Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. This month, I had the pleasure of speaking with Amr Awadullah, an Egyptian-born computer scientist and entrepreneur based in Silicon Valley. What's particularly interesting about Amr's story is that he had no interest in becoming an entrepreneur. His plan was to become an academic and teach computer science back in Cairo. But while at Stanford University, where he was doing his PhD, the entrepreneurial bug hit him and he launched his first venture, Aptivia, back in 1999, which was later acquired by Yahoo. He went on to found Cloudera, which went public back in 2017 in an IPO that raised over $4 billion. Now on his third venture, Zir AI, Amr is hoping to revolutionize the way we search online. In this podcast, recorded a few weeks ago at the Global Entrepreneurship Congress in Riyadh, we discuss his entrepreneurial journey, the key ingredients of a startup ecosystem, and why paying it forward is so important. Hello, Dr. Amr. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Uh, give us your background. Where did you study? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I was, I was born in Egypt, uh, in Cairo, uh, specifically in a town called Chobra, for people that know Egypt well enough. Uh, I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees at Cairo University. And ever since I was a young kid, my dad uh, told me, when you grow up, you're going to be a professor like me. So my dad is a professor. Uh, he teaches at uh, Cairo University, accounting and economics. And uh, that was my dream my entire life, just to grow up and be like my dad. Uh, once I got my master's, I came to the U.S. to get my uh, PhD from Stanford University. And then I frequently joke and say, Stanford University uh, very quickly uh, corrupted me. <laughs> it's like, forget about this teaching thing. <laughs> That's too noble. Uh, the, very quickly, they teach you about entrepreneurship and starting companies. They uh, invite uh, the entrepreneurs that start these amazing companies that you only hear about in the news to come talk to you and you see them and they're like normal people. They don't have wings or halos on their heads or they're just like normal people. And that makes it a lot more tractable that, hey, I can do this too. And I, uh, through, uh, through my PhD program, I left it and uh, started my first company. And that was the beginning of my career as an entrepreneur. And what was your PhD and what were you studying? Uh, my, my PhD was in computer engineering okay. and specifically in using something called virtual machines. Uh, to make the web a lot more scalable and dynamic in nature. So you were an academic um, yes. up until that point. Yes. And you, I guess something switched in your head that you decided to launch a business. How did you attain the skills to, to go and, and do that? Yeah, I would say two things. First is, again, seeing the founders of these companies that we only heard about in the news coming and speaking in front of us uh, makes us feel... It, we can be like them. Like It's not like uh, rocket science or something that's impossible. It's something that is possible. That was number one. It's just getting over that uh, psychological barrier of, I cannot be this. Mm -hmm. uh, that was coupled with uh, Stanford has very rich curricula on the business aspects of a startup. So the technology, the science, we're learning that through our degrees normally. Uh, but we don't get taught explicitly in other universities, how do you go around doing a VC pitch? Uh, venture capital pitch presentation. How do you do a business plan? How do you do a marketing plan, a sales plan? How do you establish product market fit for uh, the idea that you're working on? Uh, and uh, Stanford, uh, to their credit, they have lots of courses around that, many of them with practical implementations where during the course, you actually 
finish the course building a business plan that you then get to pitch to a number of VCs, literally from uh, from uh, sorry Sand Hill Road, and they uh, judge you and tell you how good you're doing and what are things that are weakness, what are things that are strength, so you can improve your skill in terms of how you do that going forward. So I'd say these were the two things: uh, seeing that. The people that founded other companies before us are normal people, <laughs> coupled with the, the education on the business side and not just the technology side. And I guess that access to not only the education, but also to the networks of people who were willing to give you that sort of feedback. Exactly, yes. Uh, I, I frequently would say that uh, one of the very key ingredients of the Silicon Valley and what made it successful is this pay it forward culture. Uh, not just the entrepreneurs, uh, meaning they're willing to come and talk at events and inspire others and even spend one-on-one -on -one sessions with them to mentor them and help them and coach them, but the investors as well uh, being very accessible and saying, hey, if you have an idea, you want to talk to me, here's my business card, send me an email. So uh, that access of uh, trying to help and not just trying to take advantage of, if I might be more blunt, is a very key ingredient to create a successful startup ecosystem. And so you decided to launch your first venture. What, what was it? Tell us more about it. Yeah, so my first venture was a comparison shopping engine for comparing prices of products on the web. And uh, it was one year old. We started in 1999 and we got acquired in 2000. We were one year old, five people, and we were acquired by Yahoo uh, for uh, $9 million. That would have been substantial. Uh, it's still substantial even by today's means. Okay. Uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> because if you don't raise funding, we haven't raised any funding per se, wow. and if you create a company from nothing, we're really, uh, I mean, I, I came to the US with just a thousand bucks in my pockets, that's all I had. <laughs> and then suddenly I became a millionaire, so no, it, it's, it is a big deal. Many entrepreneurs would love to have one year of work result in a, a company that gets acquired for nine million. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how did the idea for, the, for that even come about? I mean, online shopping back then was virtually non-existent, even in the US. It was starting. It was yeah. starting, and uh, many we observed the problem, especially with textbooks for college students. That was the beginning. And when we go and try to buy a textbook, the, the the bookstores and the universities they tend to charge higher than what the true price of the book is. Uh, when you can buy it online for much cheaper in many places, so we gave the students a way to very quickly compare the prices of the local bookstore of the university to all of the online options and Amazon would frequently win actually. Amazon was starting and Amazon as you know the beginning of Amazon was books. <laughs> so uh, that was the beginning of what we built but we very quickly expanded the product to cover other types of uh, items so not just books. Yeah. And then after that, after you exited, what, what did you do? Yeah, I spent, I spent eight years at Yahoo. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a big reason why is because while I was at Yahoo uh, I really wanted to finish my PhD. I actually had not finished my PhD. I had taken a leave of absence from Stanford University to start this company that got acquired. Was that easy for you to do mentally, to kind of completely change course? I mean, it was the PhD that took you to the US. Yes. And to kind of abandon that for a bit. Yeah, it was, no, it was not easy. It was not easy, but it was exciting. And uh, the excitement of doing something new and different than uh, what your dad was telling you to do all your life can sometimes be fun. <laughs> So, uh, how, how did your family take it when you told them that you're leaving your PhD in order to do something else? Oh, my wife always has been very supportive, uh, very, very supportive from uh, ever since we've known each other. So it was not an issue at all, actually. And uh, it worked out at the end, so it was yeah. fine. 
but while I was at uh, Yahoo, uh, my dad uh, kept uh, nagging me to go back and finish my PhD. He said, you have to finish your PhD. And I would joke with him and tell him, Baba, uh, I already made more money than you made your entire career, literally. Like, I made more money than you had made your entire career. Why do I need to go back and finish the PhD? And he would say for me, like, I need you to finish it for me. <laughs> like, and, and at some point, uh, I, I, I internalized that uh, getting a PhD in many ways is like winning an Olympic medal. You win the Olympic medal not for income, not for a career. You're winning it because it's an accomplishment you want to achieve, right? And the PhD, uh, for me, became like that. I want to achieve that accomplishment, uh, not just to please my dad, but also because I literally wanted to achieve it. Uh, but I advise people today and tell them, do not, especially in our field of computer engineering, that's moving so quickly as an industry, I tell them, do not go for a PhD. Only go for the PhD in one of two cases. Uh, the first one is you really want that accomplishment and you're worth, it's worth the time to go and get it. And the second one is if you plan to be a professor and you want to teach in universities, the only way to do that is if you have a PhD. But other than that, it's not worth it. Just go work for a company, uh, start your own company and get something done. You will learn a lot more. How valuable was that a period working for Yahoo? It was very, very variable, uh, very variable on multiple fronts. Uh, so first, and in fact, I advise people today, don't start a company right out of school. Right, right out of school, work for another startup so you can learn the mistakes on somebody else's payroll <laughs> before making them yourself. That, that's kind of uh, the number one thing. So working at Yahoo, I got to see a lot of uh, good ways of how things should be done. But more importantly, I got to see a lot of ways how things should not be done. <laughs> right? And that helps minimize risk when I start my own company. And then the other thing is I built a very rich network of people. So Yahoo was a hyper-growth company at the time. And it went, when I was joined Yahoo, it was a few thousand people, went to about 15,000. So you build a very rich network of connections of people you can hire into your next startup when you start one yourself. And it was actually very, very true. Like Cloudera, which was my next uh, startup out of uh, Yahoo, a lot of the founding team that uh, we had came from Yahoo, from my connections at Yahoo. And same thing with my co-founders. Uh, my co-founders came from Facebook and Google, and they were able to pull in a lot of people from those companies. I mean, Cloudera is, is the incredible story, I guess, in, in your career. Yes. Um, tell us more about it. Yeah, Cloudera definitely is the highlight of my career so far. I'm hoping this new company uh, I'm working on will become the next uh, level. Uh, but Cloudera, yeah, it uh, went from nothing, uh, just four people, myself and three other co-founders, to where it is today. It's still uh, alive today and kicking. Uh, it's about uh, 2,500 people worldwide operating in many, many, many countries, including here in the region. And it was a pioneer uh, building one of the very first ways to do what's called big data analytics. How can we analyze massive amounts of data and extract insights and decisions in an automated way out of that data? Uh, we were very, one of the very first to launch something like that based on open source technologies. Uh, the, the company made it all the way to IPO, so it went public for about uh, $4 billion was the IPO. And a few months ago, it got acquired by a private equity firm called KKR for about $5.3 billion. And one of the highlights of, of my life period, uh, besides seeing my children uh, being born, was uh, literally uh, doing the IPO. You go to the New York Stock Exchange and they have this very archaic uh, tradition that they still have today where you, they give you a hammer and there is a bell they bring in front of you and you literally have to knock the bell with the hammer, launching your company now from being a private youngster to being a public adult company, right? And that's, it feels, it felt, it, for me, it felt exactly like when my kids graduate from high school. 
like now you're independent uh, it's 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 uh, the fruits of our labor uh, finally now materialized <laughs> yes 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 exactly uh, why did you take that decision to IPO and not seek an acquisition like your last um, startup yeah all all uh, all entrepreneurs their their uh, intention is always not to build a company to be acquired uh, our intention is always we want to build the next Google, we want to build the next Facebook, we want to build the next Intel. We want to build a, a company that's going to stand the test of time and uh, live beyond our lifetimes. Uh, so Howlett and Packard, uh, the HP, they're both dead, but HP lives on. Uh, Steve Jobs, he's dead, but Apple lives on. And many of us, that's our dream, right? Acquisition is the backup plan. It's not the primary plan. The primary plan is always I want to build a company that can become a global company that can transcend my lifetime. Uh, that's all entrepreneurs, I, would, I think, should be uh, operating in that mode and shooting for the stars, essentially. And then you settle to be acquired. That's like the, set the plan B. If plan A doesn't work, then you go for the acquisition. It's so interesting you say this because I think in the region, the vast majority of entrepreneurs think of being acquired as the plan A. Yeah. Um, building a company to last, I've probably come across only a handful of entrepreneurs that think that way. Yeah. Why do you think that is? And is it kind of the fault of the investors in the region that really kind of push this exit strategy? Uh, two things. First, I actually don't like the word exit. Okay. I actually hate the word exit because even when you IPO as an entrepreneur, that's not the exit, that's the base camp. Like, like when you're climbing a mountain, you work very hard to get to what's called the base camp, which is the bottom of the mountain. You work very hard to get there. And then the real journey begins. So if you look at Google or Cloudera, and uh, like all the work we did to get it to the IPO was nothing compared to the work after the IPO to really grow that company to be a mega, mega company. So I never think of the IPO as an exit. Uh, IPO is the... Uh, a key milestone on the journey uh, to, bring, to, to, bring, to bring something and build something amazing and great. Uh, I think the reason why, uh, correctly so, I, I would say the region here focuses more on acquisitions is because the, the, the public markets have not been uh, trained yet, uh, muscle-wise, to accept such companies. It's starting to happen. So now we have uh, Fauri uh, in Egypt. So here in Saudi Arabia, we had Jahiz. Uh, in Egypt, we had Fauri. We have Swivel as a newer one that's doing a, a special acquisition vehicle uh, spec thing. did the, the same. Yes. Spike, yeah. yeah. So the more and more of these that we see, then now the entrepreneurs will start to look at, the, oh, that's another path we can take. Uh, but they have not seen that path, and so I can't blame them. Uh, same thing, the investors, they have not seen that path. They only have seen the path of acquisitions. Uh, but as they see more and more of these successes, I think they will lean more towards uh, that path instead. Yes. And so now you're, you've got a new startup called Zeev AI. Yes. Um, tell us a bit more about that. So uh, I, I actually first went, uh, I took a break after Cloudera, uh, and worked for Google for a couple of years. So I worked at Google Cloud as Vice President of Developer Relations. And then out of Google Cloud, I was taking a break. I, I always say it's good, it's good to take a break between your startups because a startup is hard. You have to work really hard to create a company from scratch to be something. And you need to be both mentally and emotionally prepared to do something like that. And you need to rebuild your network of engineers you can hire and so on. So I did spend some time at Google, but coming out of Google and while I was there, I saw this amazing innovation that's happening in the AI machine learning space around how computers can understand human languages. Uh, 2010 and before, computers could only understand human languages, whether it be Arabic, English, French, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, they could only understand them at the level of a third grader. 
meaning somebody who's seven years old. That's the best that computers could do. They couldn't really exceed that. And then during the 2010s, three very key innovations took place that led by the end of 2018, computers beat benchmarks that uh, exceed adult level human comprehension. So they're able to understand language just as good as adult humans. Not uh, Nobel laureate human, like the expert, expert linguists, but the average adult human. They were able to exceed their comprehension levels. And uh, I saw that being born while at Google, and I came across two engineers, two very, very strong engineers from Google that actually pitched me a couple of years ago on an idea to do something like that. And at that time, I declined to invest in them because I thought, oh, you could only do this at Google where you have millions and millions of CPUs and GPUs and computers. But uh, that was the reason I declined back then. I I told them, I don't think you could do this with such a shoestring budget. They were only raising a million dollars. But then I met them again last summer and they built the whole thing. They built this amazing neural network uh, that can understand human language at a very deep level and convert the words that we talk to with each other, the English coming out of my mouth right now, or Arabic or whatever, converted from vocabulary and grammar into meaning instead. So they build this meaning space, a neural network that creates this meaning space where you understand the essence of things. So the example I like to use to illustrate that to the layman person, uh, today if you go to Google and search for, uh, I'm looking for the recipe for how to cook molokhia. Uh, Google will get you the best English article on how to cook molokhia by some random chef in the US or maybe a page on Wikipedia or somebody in England. It's not going to give you the original, authentic Arabic article on exactly how to cook molokhia, probably written by the inventor of molokhia, right? (laughs) It's not going to give you that because it's a very different language and the meaning is expressed in a very different way in that language. But with our technology, you will get that page because our technology will take your query, how to cook molokhia, will convert it from English into meaning instead. And then it will match meaning to meaning and get you the best documents that match that meaning and then present them back to you and maybe translate them back to you because your puny human brain only understands English or only understands Arabic. Yeah, that's my teeny brain. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our. Sorry, I didn't mean yours specifically. I meant us as humans. But what, what, is, what is quite fascinating is that you make it sound as though it's, it's such a simple process, but for a machine to ha- understand the essence of a language, yes, that's nothing like we've seen before. Mm-hmm. What, what are the implications of that You know, further down the line? Massive implications, massive implications. I mean, just first imagine when you're doing a research for a very heavy topic today, for one of the articles that you're writing, one of the blog posts you're writing, you either have to go and read many, many, many other articles first or hire an intern and ask them to go read all of them and give you the two paragraphs or the three paragraphs that have the the, the golden nuggets that you can base your article on. Computers can do that today. With these techniques today, the computers literally can do that for you. They can go and fetch the most relevant paragraphs. You can give it 20,000 articles and say, go read these 20,000 articles and give me the three paragraphs that match this concept that I want to write about. And it will do that for you. That's number one. Number two, with newer techniques like GPT. GPT is a very famous new technique for generating text. So not just reading text, authoring text. You can tell it and write for me the article, right? So, so not only read the other papers, read them. This is the general thesis I want to write my article about. Write for me the article. Yeah. And the computer will write the article for you. And then you will go and edit it to have your own tone and you're done. I mean, the, I think it was The Guardian a few years ago published an article written by AI. Mm-hmm. And it was okay. 
Like, if it, it was astounding how far the technology had, had reached. Yes. And um, th so three years ago, this was just born. Yeah. This is getting better every year. So projecting this out 10, 20 years from now, that there is no question that this technology will be able to write stuff as sophisticated, if not better, than the average human. Not the excellent human. You're an excellent okay, human, so you're going to be safe. <laughs> but the average human, it would absolutely beat. There's no question about that. In terms of IP in that sense, if a machine is writing poetry, an article, who owns the IP for something like that? Uh, so again, so the machine doesn't write the IP spontaneously. Uh, sorry, the, the machine doesn't write the articles spontaneously. You still have to point it. Like a human still points it. It gives it, uh, gives it some other articles to look at, some other research material to look at, and it gives us the beginning of a thesis. I'm writing this about this topic. So you still, there is uh, a creative mind still behind the machine uh, guiding it towards that article. Okay. So that person that is guiding the machine, they would still own the IP. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so your solution sits atop other search engines or is, is it a standalone search tool? How does it work? Very, very good question. So our, our uh, solution is what's called a search engine as a service. So it's a cloud service where other companies can subscribe to our engine. We take care of all of the AI, machine learning, neural networks, super complex stuff that makes it work. All you have to do is give us the documents you would like to analyze and the topics you're looking after and uh, the magic just happens. So you don't have to go and hire an army of rocket scientists uh, to make it work. We just make it work for you. And today we're selling it to other companies. It's not to consumers today. So it's not open for consumers. This is now being sold to other companies uh, to leverage in their own uh, organizations. But eventually we plan to uh, uh, create a consumer version as well. Fantastic. Yeah. I want to take this back to your experience in the region as well. You, you've come back, um, you spend time here, you're, you sound very passionate about helping the ecosystem yes. in the region. Yes. What can we learn from your experience? Yeah, so two things. First, I'm very passionate about helping the world at large, not just the region. Uh, I think I, I feel an affinity for the region because I was born here and because Saudi Arabia very graciously gave me the citizenship here, so I feel like I, I'm in debt and I have to help. Uh, but my goal is to help the world, uh, and I'm helping here a bit more because of my affinity. Uh, and I think the key lessons I keep uh, reiterating to the region, the region here, if you want to replicate what happened in the Silicon Valley, which is the whole world is trying to re uh, replicate the same thing, we need five very key ingredients to fall in place. Uh, and many of them are already falling in place. So the first one is entrepreneurial talents. And that what, what that means is two things. People that are smart in their domain, and the domain could be anything. The domain could be fashion, the domain could be arts, the domain could be technology, the domain could be agriculture, could be manufacturing. Uh, but they need to be really smart in that domain, coupled with the willingness to take risk. Because what would make somebody leave a very cushy, high salary job to go and create a company other than the willingness to take risk because of the passion they have for the problem they're solving. So that's number one. And I think we have many of those today. So we're starting to see that happen in the region. Second, we need to have uh, venture capital that is willing to take the risk and understands how different it is to invest in startups th than to do what's called investment banking. When you're doing investment banking, the unit economics is, are very clear. You put money this way, you get money back that way. The risk is so low, the returns are so low. That's just that's how it works. With, uh, with venture capital investments, the risks are so high. In fact, only two of every 10 investments you make will make you money back. The other eight will yeah. just uh, either shut down or just return, barely return the money. They're not going to make you a profit. But the two that make it, they make it 10x to 100x, right? And that exceeds what, what anything you can get with, uh, with normal investment uh, banking techniques. 
So we need uh, venture capital that understands that, which we have many of that in the region now, is starting to really bloom. Um, especially over the last three years, I've seen it really uh, start to hit a hockey stick kind of curve. Uh, third, we need to have talent, the smart talent that can work for these companies, that understand how to do, in my case, for example, uh, understand how to do machine learning and AI. Uh, and we need to recognize that if we depend on our universities, that's great, but that's going to take a very, very long time before the talent is ready. If you look at the Silicon Valley, their genius is, they said we're going to depend on our universities, for example, Stanford and Berkeley, both in Silicon Valley, but at the same time, we're going to import as much talent as we can from all over the world. The smartest people we find, we're going to bring them over. And we need to have that same attitude here to bootstrap the system. That's, Go ahead. It, it's interesting because we're seeing that happen, particularly in a place like Dubai that tries to attract startups from yes. around the world. Saudi Arabia is doing yes. the same thing. But then there's also this other argument that why are you importing when you should be training your own? What's the value in importing all these startups from Very simple, the world? very simple. It's because who's going to train your own? You don't have the skill set to train your own. You don't have the machine learning expert. You don't have the AI expert. You bring them in, they train your own, and then the next generation of companies 10 years from now will be started by your own. That's how it works. Okay. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very selfish exercise. It's not about bringing the other people just because we love them. It's okay. because they will train, and that's exactly how the, the U.S. operates. But of course, you have to be fair and treat everybody well. So which comes to the third ingredient. The third ingredient is having uh, co contracts, laws, and regulations that uh, enable the whole trust in the ecosystem. When an investor gives money to a startup, they trust the startup's not going to take the money and run. <laughs> when a startup signs a contract with a big company, they trust that that big company will pay them back because they signed the contract. Uh, you need to have, when an employee is working for a company, they trust they're not going to be fired for no reason. You need to have all of these things in place to enable the, the trust needed for an ecosystem to flourish. And I guess in t terms of law, you need that to protect IP. Of course, yeah. yeah, protection of IP is very important, but I always, like, I have a, like a double-edged uh, sword kind of, or double-edged uh, opinion when it comes to IP. Uh, I, I think an idea, an IP, is worth, literally worth the paper it's written on. It's all about execution, especially in our field of uh, technology and computers. In the field of technology and computers, it's moving so fast, that who executes fast wins. Yeah. You hold the IP on a patent that you're not executing on, you will fail. No, it doesn't matter if you have that. And if you have it and somebody else already proved it ahead of you, then your patent is worthless anyway. So that's kind of uh, my attitude there is. IP is good, but only for defensive reasons. Like if you look at Google, uh, for example, Google never sued any other company based on a patent. They never. They okay. would say, go ahead, use whatever, because we believe in whoever executes well, they earn the right to, uh, to uh, reap the rewards of that. And if you're doing very well, like YouTube, for example, then we'll acquire you and you become part of Google. <laughs> so that's my opinion when it comes to IP. And then the last very key ingredient, which I always uh, like to stress, is a culture of paying it forward. Like what made the Silicon Valley truly succeed is from day one, they always had this culture of, if I make it, I'm going to help the next generation. And it, that really starts 200 years ago with the very first entrepreneur, uh, Stanford. So Stanford Senior, uh, he built the, 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 rail, the railroads that connected the East Coast with the West Coast in the US. And he became very rich from that. He could have taken his money and went and uh, go buy cars and uh, buy islands and just live his life. No, he took all of that money and he made Stanford University, which became the seed for Hewlett-Packard uh, later on, about 70, 80 years ago, to get this genius idea for how to build electronics. And they left Stanford and started HP. And HP is literally the kind of the, the beginning of the Silicon Valley, and they started in their garage. And then a few years later, Steve Jobs, only 13 years old, 
calls up Hewlett and Hewlett answers the phone when he's a very rich man he doesn't need to answer the phone he literally answered the phone and Steve Jobs told him I would like to borrow some chips to build something not only did he give him the chips he gave him an internship in his company and taught him how to build electronics which led to Apple being cre created and the next is history so the culture of paying it forward is very important for an, to create this uh, effect where he can create the next Silicon Valley in the region do you see that happening a lot here? Not yet, yeah. unfortunately. And, and that's why I'm, like, I'm, I'm trying to lead by example. I'm trying to do that myself here. And uh, I, I invite all of your listeners who are making it well, like all of these startups we referred to earlier that are either going IPO or uh, being acquired, please, please, please pay it forward. Play, pay it forward. Like, dedicate 10%, 20% of your time to help the next generation. Uh, because with that, without that, we'll never reach the same levels of success that the Silicon Valley has. I guess one of the best examples we have in the region is Kareem. Uh, we matched yes. the, the mafia, the, all the other startups that came out yes. as a result of that. Yes. And it's, it's staggering just every year yes. how many more are added to that list. Yes, and Modesser pays back. Uh, Modesser pays it forward. Yes, he does. So Modesser, not, not, not only does he invest in other companies, he mentors them, he gives talks left and right. So he's definitely one of the best examples when it comes to that. So we need a lot more Modessers uh, in the region. Yes. Okay. We also track the, the investment data of different sectors, and we see a lot going into fintech these days, cloud kitchens, um, and still like e-commerce and marketplace make up the bulk of deals. Is that the sort of ecosystem that creates innovation, or is something missing? I mean, last year, food tech raised almost $600 million, fintech similar. Deep tech, it was only about $77 million. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we bring up that, the kind of, the true innovation that you get with deep tech yeah. to, to the levels that we're seeing in e-commerce and marketplaces? Yeah, the reason why you're seeing all of the investment in, in fintech and food tech, if I might call it that way, <laughs> uh, and e-commerce uh, at large, is because they are very uh, tractable as businesses. They're lower risk. And if we already saw the model worked in Europe, the model worked in uh, Latin America, the model worked in Asia, then most likely it's going to work here, right? So, so you get this kind of lower risk, but you also get lower return because whatever you're building there is only going to be for the region, right? Maybe, maybe you're going to get a bit more like Middle East kind of influence, maybe some Africa influence. You're not going to get worldwide influence because it's already been done somewhere else. So by definition, you're lagging behind whoever did it first. And what I would like to see the, a change happen here in the region is it's not necessarily about deep tech. Uh, I, I would uh, rather call it new tech. <laughs> new tech, meaning something new that the region thinks about first before anybody else, so that we are the origin and the Me Too's happen there as opposed to the other way around, right? We are the Uber and the Kareem happens somewhere else, right? Not that Kareem is not a great success, it is. But that's kind of what I'm hoping to see uh, going forward. And there's some good examples of that. One of the startups I'm proud of uh, that started that journey uh, almost 10, 10 years ago now is a company called Instabug. Yep. And Instabug builds this technology that helps mobile app developers uh, debug and uh, performance tune their applications. And they are the only one in the world that do that right now. And they're way ahead of everybody else because they really thought about how to do it for the world and not just how to do it for Saudi Arabia or do it for Egypt. No, they were thinking global from day one. And I encourage more and more of the entrepreneurs here in the region to start thinking that way. How can I take the cool application I built and not just focus on the Saudi markets, not just focus on the Egyptian market, focus on the world markets, because that's what's going to create the next uh, Google. That's what's going to create the next Facebook. I guess that's or Didi. one part mentality, but also access to the tools necessary to build that kind of technology is still lacking. So 
investment that I mean we don't really have any investors that understand new yes. technology yes unfortunately yeah, yeah. so yeah. you see you know startups like Instabug that started off in Cairo yeah. went to Silicon Valley yes had to get order. money from Silicon Valley yeah so what's what's the solution here yeah the solution is again to have more savvy investors here that uh, understand the benefit of deep, uh, deep tech like the 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 uh, as we were saying earlier the success rate of startups uh, is very low already when you're doing deep tech and fintech the multiples you're going to get by building a fintech here in the region maybe it's going to be 10x maybe 20x maybe 100x if you're lucky uh, but if you build something deep tech that really takes off you're talking about a thousand x to a ten thousand x return right like snowflake one of the big successes of last year 80 billion dollars 80 billion dollars. You're not going to get an 80 billion dollars building something for the region. You have to be building something for the world. So uh, as we get more and more savvy investors that see that and are willing to take the risk associated with that, then we'll see more of these things happen in the region. And there's a, a good example. I mean, another good example here in the region is Classera. So Classera, they have technology that helps uh, universities and institutions to build their online education systems. And uh, they, from day one, Classera was being built. How are we going to help the world do that? Not how, how are we going to help Saudi do that, even though the founders are from Saudi Arabia and they're actually based in Saudi Arabia. No, from day one, it's like, how are we going to help the world do that? And Noon Academy is another very good example along the same lines. So that's, what, that, that's the mentality we, we need uh, more of, which I will summarize in two words. Think big. Think big. That's it. Great advice. Thank you so much, Amma, for your time. My pleasure. Thanks to Amr and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wamda.com or through your podcast provider.